Hello, everyone. Welcome to United We Stand with Jim Feeney. Uh, I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every Wednesday at 11 Eastern, hopefully with 30 minutes of insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. In my book, Locally Grown, The Art of Sustainable Government, I talk about how our country's bottom-up design of 20,000 zip codes, 50 states, and one federal level brilliantly distributes power within that bottom-up infrastructure. I talk about how our founders intended most governance to be done locally and about the inherent dangers of too many, too much centralized power. You know, I talk about the, the natural law of sustainability that governs our universe and drives evolution on this planet. And uh, the book exposes the unsustainability of our government debt and the awful bargain we make when we exchange freedom for security. I also introduce readers to many locally grown principles like sustainability, accountability, the double bottom line, harnessing excess capacity, simplification, compassion, and engaged citizenship. I'll talk more about these principles uh, in future shows, but it's my strong opinion that returning to our federalist roots through locally grown principles is the path to a sustainable, effective government. That about my book, I really want to talk about the elephant in the room right now, this coronavirus pandemic. I think it really highlights the power of federalism kind of in action with how this is playing out. You know, I always marvel at the hubris of humans who think that we can design perfect societies and control nature. And then nature comes along and teaches us yet again that it is in charge. It can change the world overnight. We went from the best economy in decades to a global pandemic that's threatening to usher in a, a global depression. We went from crowded stadiums and restaurants and schools to isolation and social distancing. We went from the lowest unemployment rate and the fastest middle-class growth in decades to a real unemployment rate that's over 20% and probably going to go higher than that. All of this because of a new virus that, although dangerous, is not a threat to 99% of our population. Now, I'm not arguing with President Trump's decision-making to recommend lockdown for two months. He was acting on the best information from CDC experts at the time. He made a good decision to stop China travel to the U.S. But when things move as fast uh, as this at scale, it's difficult to draw conclusions from the data. Leaders will do their best to react to changing circumstances, good leaders anyway, um, and the good ones change their opinion in the, in the face of better data. And I think President Trump did that by recognizing the problem-solving power of our 50-state laboratories to experiment with different ways of managing the virus so we can all learn. I believe the data shows now that we should do everything we can to protect the most vulnerable in our population, our elderly, the pre-existing folks, and then let everyone else get back to business. Still, we citizens listened to our leaders who first said that the virus is no threat, then the zombie apocalypse, and, the, and now we're somewhere, somewhere in between that. But we abided voluntarily by our government guidance because we all recognize the common good of protecting each other. So our government was established to balance uh, individual liberty with the common good, uh, with a bias towards individual liberty over time. So I spent some, uh, some calories in my book talking about different perceptions of what the common good really means in our society. In many ways, the definition of the common goods is the dividing line between the political left and right in this country. As bad as the pandemic crisis is, the federal government doesn't have the power to compel people to quarantine them in their homes or shut down businesses. The police power that this represents is reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. Powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states of the people. 
So this police power is the capacity of our states to regulate behavior and enforce order within their territory for the betterment of health, safety, morals, and the general welfare of local inhabitants. Of course, this is subject to not infringing on individual constitutional rights, but it's safe to say that this crisis falls within the, the power of state governors. So one of the silver linings in this crisis is it's showcasing the power of federalism in action. We've got governors in some states, like Michigan and Pennsylvania, that are arresting people who defy social distancing or business closure orders. New York forced nursing homes to accept COVID-19 patients, and now 30% of all deaths in New York are in nursing homes. Thankfully, uh, Governor Cuomo rescinded that order last week. In contrast, Florida has a larger population than New York and a larger elderly population, yet has 10 times fewer cases and deaths than New York. Think about that. Georgia and Florida were, e- were early to ease the lockdown rules in order to prevent further damage to their economies. So leadership is really all about this cost-benefit analysis and negotiating the differences in it. In my book, I provide lots of examples of the power of crowdsourcing, which is the sort of 50-state laboratory concept. Ten heads are better than one, and a top-down federal one-size-fits-all policy uh, usually doesn't work in a large, diverse country like the United States. So our federalism kind of begs the question of what to do when one state's decision uh, is proven not to work or become unsustainably costly. Is the rest of the country obligated to pick up the tab for those decisions? The pandemic has already driven the Federal Reserve to expand its mandate way beyond what it was originally. Now they're buying municipal bonds and corporate debt and all sorts of things, about $500 billion worth of muni debt, by the way. In a classic power move invoking the maxim of never let a crisis go to waste, the Democrat-controlled House narrowly passed a second corona relief bill worth a total of $3 trillion, and that among its political pork contains nearly $1 trillion in additional direct grants to states. Now, certainly this pandemic has created lots of economic damage that's put pressure on state budgets. No one denies that. It makes sense for the federal government to provide relief for the economic damage directly related to the pandemic. However, there are more than a handful of states whose budgets were in tatters long before COVID-19 because of decisions they made and often to protect uh, powerful political constituencies. Recently, I think this was uh, yesterday or maybe a couple days ago, the Wall Street Journal did a great comparison of the fiscal performance of New York and Florida over the last decade. So I'm just going to read over some of the things that they found. In 2010, New York's population of 19.4 million was larger than Florida's 18.8. By 2019, Florida grew to 21.5 million people, while New York remained the same. Governor Cuomo signed a budget in 2021 of $177 billion that's bigger than last year's, which has a $6 billion deficit baked in, and that's before the coronavirus. On the other hand, Florida's budget for uh, 2021 is expected to be about $93 billion. New York has its top state and local tax rate of 12.7%, and Florida has no income tax. New York has a growing budget deficit, while Florida built a surplus and paid down its debt. New York lost $9.6 billion in adjusted gross income to other states Well, in 2018, while Florida gained $16 billion in adjusted uh, income. So workers are following jobs, and high-income folks uh, have had enough of paying for the mistakes of Albany. Uh, New York spending on worker retirements has nearly doubled since 2010 and is six times greater than Florida. Keep in mind, Florida's a bigger state. Its debt service payments have also doubled in New York. 
you know, from Medicaid, the biggest cost, you know, Medicaid is the, consumes 40 percent of the New York budget, twice as much as education. Florida is way less. You know, you blame this on waste, fraud and abuse that New York tolerates, as well as its stat- status as a sanctuary city for illegal immigration. They spend two two times more per Medicaid beneficiary uh, and six times more in nursing homes in Florida. And Florida has 20 percent more elderly residents. So, you know, in Florida, job growth is higher and it goes on. But we'll talk more about uh, after the break how uh, what the obligation is for other states to pay for bad decisions. Hello, we're back to United. We stand with Jim Feeney. I'm your host, Jim Feeney. And our first segment, we were talking about the differences between states and uh, and whether states should pay for the systemically bad decisions and choices that other states make. And we contrasted New York and Florida, and uh, but they're not the only ones. Uh, you know, Connecticut, California, Illinois, New Jersey, uh, these are all states that are living way beyond their means, and they, they do it to satisfy political constituencies to keep themselves in power. So what's the obligation for the rest of the states that are managed differently, more well-managed, or at least fiscally well-managed, to bail out the other guys. A state like New York, which is a sanctuary state that encourages illegal immigration, uh, is controlled by public employees unions and, the, and really encourages waste, fraud and abuse as a feature, not a bug, of their, uh, of their politics in New York. You know, Groucho Marx said it best. Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly and applying the wrong remedies. Brilliant guy, Groucho Marx. But that pretty much sums it up. The Democrats have a big vision called the Green New Deal. It might be crazy, but it's a big vision. I give them credit for that. And then I ask myself, what is the Republican Party's vision? Not that I'm a Republican. I'm a sort of middle ground, center conservative, I guess, uh, center right type person. But I listen to good ideas. And I don't hear any good ideas from the the Republican Party. It's just stop the Democrats. Um, That's not enough, people. That's just not enough. Unfortunately, our country has already progressed far enough down the road of big government that changing the momentum uh, the other way is going to be an arduous task and take years, assuming in a best case that our citizens wake up and understand the true stakes that are at play. I try to make the case in my book, Locally Grown Government, is a big vision that can fill the void for the GOP. It's just like the Green New Deal. It's an alternative it calls for, instead of concentration of more power at the federal level, we do the opposite. We say devolve into, you know, many functions, not all, down to the state and local level where they can be managed with more uh, local accountability and generate better outcomes for the citizens. You know, and the funny part is we already transfer sig- significant federal funds down to states and local governments for functions like education and Medicaid and other things. So the infrastructure to make my plan of locally grown government in place, it's already there. That the Green New Deal tears everything up. It burns the house down and starts new. That's crazy. It's just it just doesn't make sense. So in my plan, I, I talk about just taking these block, uh, these uh, transfers that we do now and just increasing them and giving the local authorities more autonomy. Think of it this way. It supports the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker rather than mega corporations that outsource American middle class jobs to cheap labor destinations like China. Locally Grown says that we need modest across the board government budget cuts in addition to modest tax increases to stem the need for endless and dangerous money printing to finance deficits. 
locally grown supports data-driven policy reform, like using proven models like Habitat for Humanity that that have their skin-in-the-game wealth-building model in place and uh, use that in place of our federal housing policy that pays slumlords for rental subsidies. Way better outcomes provide people of lesser means with a true opportunity for wealth rather than just a state income check that goes to a, a slumlord. Everyone knows the power of owning your own home and how that changes behavior. So what good is a promise that can't be kept? Well, as long as it uh, gets votes, then it's mission accomplished, I guess. Politicians are people who, when they see light at the end of the tunnel, they go out and they buy more tunnel. But promises must be paid for, and when the well runs dry, the fraud is revealed. But by then, it's too late. The 1% runs for the hills. Well, most citizens are left holding the bag. Then it comes down to yourself, your family, and your community for survival. People who have been trained to depend on faraway Washington, D.C. to solve all their problems suddenly realize that they're on their own, and what matters most is the local communities where they live. That's the natural order of things. History has shown this repeatedly, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Soviet Union, that too much centralized power eventually collapses under its own weight. And then you're left with local anyway. So why wait for the crisis to do that? Our founders understood this bottom-up societal order to be self-evident. Families are the foundation, then communities, then states, and then the federal level. They designed the Constitution the way the universe really works to create a stable, enduring structure, bottom-up, just like a pyramid. The founders worked through the mathematics of human nature unknowingly, which says that nobody knows best for you than you. When paired with the maximum amount of freedom available after taking care of the common good, the resulting equation has created the greatest country the world's ever seen. Simple. A huge, diverse country that's done more than any empire in history in raising up the living standards of its people and defending the primacy of freedom around the world. But just because this has been our history does not guarantee this will be America's future. It's clear to me that we're, this current crisis is going to test us more than any other time in our lifetimes. So much will change on the other side of this crisis. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what the storm's all about. So the natural cycle of creative destruction that drives human history is the same way. Surviving and rebuilding after the storm requires citizen engagement more than ever because bad leaders emerge when good people don't care. The bad leaders pose as public servants while they restart the process of power consolidation. So... Let's stop looking at our digital screens. Look up, people, right? Don't look down. Look up. Leave the social distancing, not right now, but as quickly as we can, leave it in the rearview mirror and start engaging each other in informed civil debate. Let's not fear change that's coming because it's coming, whether you like it or not. But embrace it because if you can't change your mind, you can't change anything. It's my experience and my observation in history, the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones that actually change the world. Think about it. People call them crackpots and they're crazy and and that'll never work and, you know, but they stay at it because they're passionate and believe in their cause and they influence others to believe in their cause. They show them the logic of why it makes sense and it starts at the grassroots and bubbles up until and no one notices it until it becomes a revolution. For me, I'm just trying to follow the example of the 16th century theologian Martin Luther, who said, if you want to change the world, pick up your pen and write. America is the best hope for our planet, but we have to discover the brilliant roots of our founding 
to build a new, sustainable, and fairer future for all of our citizens. And with that, I'd like to heed the advice of the great Winston Churchill, who said, A good speech should be like a woman's skirt, long enough to cover the subject and short enough to create interest. If you want to continue this conversation, please subscribe to my website at www.jimfeeney.com, and you can receive my regular newsletter and comment, comment on it with others. I'll also be speaking at Damari Restaurant tomorrow at 1130 about my book, and I'll have books for sale there the following week on Thursday at 1130 at Damari. In the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other and all for all. 